and it has to go through the physician's state of mind to do the tissue diagnosis, the visual diagnosis, the local staging, all of those in one session. Good morning, good evening, or good afternoon. Welcome to Endocast. I'm your host, Tony Ray. This is episode two with our physician guest, Isaac Reichman, from St. Luke's Medical Center and Houston Methodist. Endocast is a GI-focused podcast for clinicians by clinicians, presented to you by Boston Scientific. Together, we'll take a closer look at the data, techniques, and insights of endoscopy that matter most to listeners like you. Dr. Reichman, welcome. Thank you very much. Uh, it's good to have you here on Endocast. I know there are a lot of people that are going to be excited to hear from you, and I have the distinct honor of introducing you today. Uh, so for the audience that doesn't know Dr. Reichman, uh, Dr. Reichman is a practicing interventional endoscopist at St. Luke's Medical Center and Houston Methodist. He's also a professor of medicine at Baylor College of Medicine and University of Texas in Houston. Having worked uh, for Boston Scientific for now 10 years, I can say without question that Dr. Reichman is one of the most well-respected and accomplished endoscopists globally, but even more so, he's a lot of fun to, to be around. Uh, and so I'm super excited to spend the next 20, 30 minutes with you and, and getting to know you even more. I'm not even sure where to start, uh, but for those of you that don't know you, I'd like for them to learn a little bit more about you. Can you give us just a little glimpse into your medical background and maybe just a couple philosophies that have allowed you to be so successful in this space over the years? Sure. Well, thanks for your kind introduction. Um, so I did medical school in Mexico. And um, I moved to Wisconsin, University of Wisconsin, to do uh, internal medicine, uh, University of Texas in Houston to do gastroenterology, the Wellesley Hospital in Toronto to do therapeutic endoscopy, and I moved back to Houston in 1993. And uh, I've been in Houston since then, uh, the hospitals that you referred to, and my practice, which is Texas Digestive Disease Consultants. And uh, that's where I'm at. Uh, right now. Uh, what have made the practice uh, successful? Um, availability, affability, ability, you know, all the A's that we were taught before. Uh, you have to apply those to your daily practice and uh, good things happen. That's, that's well put. Uh, in addition, I had a chance to sit down with Dr. Siddiqui uh, just a couple days ago. And one of the things that she mentioned, I think you had dinner with her recently, and she, she told me that you advised her to have hobbies outside of GI. I sure did. So my, knowing you for a while, uh, my understanding is that you're really into cars, uh, art, and also wine. Which is your favorite and why? <laughs> so, uh, yes, I saw uh, Dr. Siddiq recently at a conference in Spain in Valladolid. And... Um, I've been an artist before I became a physician. So I had my first uh, painting exhibit uh, when I was 16 years old. One painting, but that was the first exhibit. And so arts, um, visual arts painting is, uh, uh, right now it's a second profession, more so than just a hobby. Uh, so uh, we have a foundation called the Arts of Healing, which is an exposure of physicians, art, medicine, and that keeps us quite busy. 
And then, uh, indeed, I like cars. The faster the car, the better, <laughs> within regulation. And um, yeah, we like uh, wine and tequila. Tequila runs in my bloodstream. I'm from Mexico. And so that painting when you were 16, is it still, you still have it, or what was it of? So actually, that's uh, what's left behind in Mexico, and it belongs to someone who acquired it. Okay. Yes. Thank you for sharing. So with that said, this afternoon, we are going to talk in detail about diagnosis of cholangiocarcinoma, which, of course, has evolved tremendously over the years. Uh, thankfully, there's, there's better modalities out there. So first question I have for you, how do these patients make it to you, and in what condition do they make it to you, and from where are they coming from? Sure. So unfortunately, the majority of patients that will be diagnosed with cholangiocarcinoma will be at an advanced stage. So many of them will present with uh, jaundice, uh, constitutional symptoms such as weight loss, anorexia, but some of them will present at a relatively earlier stage because they are found to have abnormal liver enzymes or an imaging of the abdomen obtained for whatever reason uh, shows some significant changes that merit the investigation. And we are currently seeing worldwide, including the Western world, we are seeing an increasing incidence of cholangiocarcinoma more so the intrahepatic type as opposed to the extrahepatic type. The intrahepatic type is not the one that we're actually going to deal with from an endoscopic standpoint, it's the other one. And so if I'm a referring physician, how would a patient present that has consistent with cholangiocarcinoma versus a patient that may have stone disease? So a patient with cholangiocarcinoma may actually have similar changes to those of a Baldock stone. And that will lead me to a point that I will refer to shortly. But these patients may present with or without pain to the right upper quadrant, may or may not have jaundice, may or may not have weight loss, may feel fine. And uh, they will undergo, because feeling malaise or some uh, non-well-categorized symptom. They may be evaluated, and then blood tests will show elevated liver enzymes. An ultrasound or a CAT scan or an MRI will show abnormalities in the biliary tree. When those things are put together, then we assess those patients uh, with endoscopic ultrasound oftentimes uh, to ensure that the pancreas is okay. If the patient has good imaging of the pancreas, we may not need to do endoscopic ultrasound, and then we'll do ERCP. And that is the point that is very critical to uh, understand when those patients present to us with what appears to be the possibility of a biliary neoplasm, we have to be ready to provide that patient the best possible intervention. If it's a stone, it's a stone, and then we take care of those. Some, some of those patients may be rather obvious, very clear evidence of stone disease, but there are some that are not. And some of those patients may be actually confused between stone and biliary tumor. At the time of the ERCP, if the patient may have a biliary stricture, which will raise the concern of cholangiocarcinoma more so than stone, uh, or will have a filling defect. And that filling defect may or may not be an impacted stone, maybe tumor. 
In those patients, we have to be able to visualize the inside of the bowel duct as opposed to just relying on injecting contrast because the reality is that contrast will only tell us the same as an MRCP, for example. So you touched on a lot of points there. The one thing that stood out to me and I think the audience would like to learn more about is imaging technology, which I know has changed a lot over the years. So I'm curious to understand what type of imaging are you using before ERCP or EUS, and how has that changed what you're doing? The majority of patients <clears throat> will come to me referred either by another gastroenterologist or a surgeon, um, and uh, those patients will already have extensive imaging. Some of them may already have an ERCP done, and actually some of them may already have had the cholangioscopy performed. In those patients, you have to have an idea as to where the potential problem is, whether it's in the distal bile duct, in the middle of the bile duct, or the level of the hilum. The closer to the hilum it is, the greater the possibility that that is a cholangiocarcinoma. And so you also talked about EUS uh, before potential ERCP as well. Is EUS always first just to rule out pancreatic disease, or what does that look like? So endoscopic ultrasound is highly valuable, but we do have very good imaging of the pancreas also that does not involve EUS. If the pancreas is completely normal and there are no indirect signs to suggest pancreatic cancer, for example, dilated pancreatic duct, then we don't necessarily need to do endoscopic ultrasound. If there is a question, we will always do endoscopic ultrasound first and we can do endoscopic ultrasound and actually find that there is a mass in the distal bile duct and not necessarily in the pancreatic gland. So depending on what the patient manifests is whether we do EUS or not. But not all patients require pre-ERCP EUS. Perfect. Thank you. Can we talk a little bit about the actual ERCP? So if you have a difficult stricture, you get a wire through that stricture. What is going through your head next as far as the next steps of that procedure? The first thing is the reason why there was difficulty in this stricture. Uh, number two, the location of the stricture, the length of the stricture, and the morphology of it on contrast. If we are talking about a difficult stricture, before we actually get the accessory above the stricture, we may be able to only define a certain amount of th that stricture because we don't want to inject contrast and then not be able to drain. So the majority of the time we will have an accessory of sorts above the stricture and then we'll define it. A difficult stricture may be either the location of the stricture, more so in the hilum, the complexity of the stricture, whether it's single, multiple, where it is, which branch of the intrahepatics uh, it, it uh, involves. And also the difficulty may be in getting the wire itself across the stricture. If the stricture is uh, difficult to navigate with the wire, then what we do is once we get the wire on the other side, then we will leave that wire in place, and then my thought process will go through cholangioscopy, balloon dilation, what type of scent am I going to place long before I tell the staff to get something ready. 
And so, more or less, your your thought process after getting that wire up is getting a very good sort of map of what needs to be done. That's correct. So in the assessment of ability structure, there are several things that have to go through the endoscopist's mind. One is immediately you have an idea as to what it could potentially be. Immediately you also think of is this a single stricture or a difference or multiple stricture? If it's a distal stricture, could this patient have a more proximal pathology, what we call local staging? Um, I'm also thinking of what type of stent I'm going to place, whether it's going to be plastic stent, whether it's going to be metal stent, or of which, which type of metal stent is going to be, the length, and so on. And I also had to think as to potential future interventions on that patient. So I don't want to burn any bridges, either endoscopic or surgical. All that goes through your mind. Perfect. Thanks for sharing. In, in the next podcast series, Dr. Siddiqui is going to take us through uh, hyalur stricture stenting as well. Perfect. What about best practices for advancing spy scope up the duct? I know that that is one that comes up frequently with a lot of clinicians. <laughs> yes, it does. So uh, with spyscope, uh, and when I was referring before at colangioscopy, uh, spyscope is the one that we currently utilize. Um, spyscope and spyglass per se, it's as good as the ERCP is going to be. Because spyglass is an endoscopy performed within an endoscopy. It's not an accessory, it's a true endoscopy. If the ERCP has difficulties, it will be very difficult to do a proper spyglass. If the ERCP is performed the way it's supposed to be, then spyglass will be successful. There are some inherent challenges with uh, spyglass, um, and uh, some of those include, one, understanding the tip of the spyscope, where the wire is not in the middle of the scope, it's off-center, and there's some plastic around it that may abut against tissue. So you have to understand where the wire is and where the spyscope is going to be. That's number one. Number two, um, it's very important to utilize the duodenoscope along with the spyscope. It's not just a push the spyscope technique. That should actually be avoided but it's a combination of movement of the duodenoscope and the spyscope, and also to understand that spyscope is a maneuverable uh, uh, endoscope. You can modify the tip, you can uh, steer the tip, and that is of high benefit to the endoscopist. And then we'll do the endoscopy spyglass uh, evaluation from the proximal end to the distal end. You asked me before about difficult strictures. So if I had difficulty in advancing the wire through a stricture, my task will be to leave a wire safety in the, through the stricture and do spyglass alongside the existing wire. So then I ensure that I will be able to train that segment without causing harm. And then spyglass, we will use it going Every segment of the right, every segment of the left, and every segment I'm talking about the major segments, not the little branches, because physically we cannot move forward. And then assess for local staging, extent of the disease, and so on. No, that's that's a great tip. I hadn't even thought about 
the rescue wire in place through the stricture. Thanks for sharing. How about best practices or tips to get the best biopsy sample of suspected cholangiocarcinoma? There are different techniques. The one that I personally use is um, I want to take one biopsy at a time and ensure that I have that piece of tissue in the, in the jar. The better biopsies are obtained from where there is either a shoulder of tissue or exophytic tissue or something that is grabbable. And uh, we'll grab that with a spy bite and take it out of the jar. And my assistant will tell me it's a good sample or not. It's good sample is, is categorized as something that is visible. And then we will take a very minimum of four. More is better, but none less than four. And then we will take biopsies from the stricture itself. And also for staging, we will take it, even if it's normal, on segments that are potentially surgically removable. For patients that have a stricture that is infiltrative, in which spy bite may slide over the mucosa, may be difficult to grasp, then you actually have to do a biopsy, almost like if you're doing an esophageal biopsy, in which you will open up the spy bite cup, bring it against the spy scope, and then bend the tip of the spy scope against the wall and push where you can grab tissue. And then if possible, you can do the bite over bite over bite, so trying to get in the same spot. And how are the samples being processed after you take the scope out? So we don't take the scope out. Uh, we take all the biopsies and uh, we'll give the samples to the assistant and they will put them in a formalin jar. Um, once we get at least four, they're visualized, we send them to pathology. We have close interaction with the pathologist. They know what to expect when it's coming from a spite bite size. Because if you do not talk to your pathologist, they are expecting your usual biopsy samples, which are much larger. They're about four to five times bigger. And so they know what to expect, and then the pathologist will create a block, and then, uh, and then that's how it's processed. Great. Let's talk a little bit more about the staging process. I know you talked about mapping and giving a good bit of information to the surgeons. How do you actually stage these patients based on what you're seeing using the cholangioscope? So it's very important to assess the left and the right intrahepatic system. And as you will know, the left system is primarily divided into segment four, two, and three. Those are the ones that we will actually see. And segment four, 4A and 4B are the branches. Those are still outside the liver. Those are extrahepatic section. Whereas the confluence of two and three, you're already inside the liver. So it is very important to get the spyscope two, segment two and three confluence to assess that, and we take a biopsy. And that is a biopsy for staging, even if it looks normal. So I can, with certainty, tell my surgeon visually looks fine and bioptically looks fine. And we'll do that on the left side. On the right side, we'll go segment five and eight, as well as segment six and seven, and we'll do the exact same process. We currently don't have the means to 
tattoo the area or to mark the area. So we rely on distances that we see from the confluence into the right and left system. The distance can vary between what you actually see with the cholangoscope with spyglass versus how much you have traveled. So we try to match that with the fluoroscopy and uh, they will tell the surgeons. So we're approximately X number of millimeters away from um, the posterior segment of the right side of the anterior segment or X number of centimeters from confluence on the left system and work our way down. Uh, that's for hilar strictures. For strictures that are below the hilum, uh, then we'll do the same thing, how far away we are from the hilum and then uh, the distance from the ampulla because it'll be important for the surgeon to know the extent of the resection for that patient. And as just a follow-up to that, what would be something that you might see that would immediately tell you the patient is not a surgical candidate? It's the local extent of the disease. You may have a good idea as to what that is solely based on cholangiography, but nothing really matches the beauty and the benefit of cholangioscopy. So with spyglass, if we see extent of the disease, we will biopsy, and that's good enough to know because most of the time we can classify patients or upstage the patient from a stage, perhaps a Klatskin two or a bismuth two to uh, a uh, three, three A, three B, or, or even a four. So we'll stage that's those patients. And so after your staging is complete, you've got a good map, what type of conversation do you have or interaction are you having with the oncologist at this point? So we'll have the conversation with the oncologist and the surgeon. And with the surgeon, we'll say yes or no is resectable, and uh, the oncologist will be the same. So the oncologist will take, obviously, part of the oncologic intervention, and the surgeon will... Uh, no, not operate. We do have the instances where it looks like cancer, smells like cancer, but we just cannot prove pathologically because we don't have a 100% rate on biopsies. Um, 86, 90 in the best of uh, outcomes, uh, but we have proven that the visual uh, assessment of the structure is highly um, sensitive. So if we see changes that are highly suggestive of malignancy with or without proof, maybe good enough for the oncologist as well as to the surgeon. Uh, that does not include patients that have primary sclerosis and cholangitis, which is completely different. So as far as visual assessment goes, what are some of the things that clinicians should be looking for that would indicate this patient uh, has cholangiocarcinoma from a visual assessment standpoint? Sure. So there are some classifications uh, out there, um, and uh, the most characteristic or the most indicative of malignancy is vascularity of the stricture. Patients that have a highly vascular lesion, patients that have what is called a tumor vessel, which is a prominent, redundant, tortuous uh, vessel, um, exophytic tissue, especially when it's a non-uniform exophytic tissue where you have villi that are small in size, large in size. Some of them have central vessels. 
Um, those are characteristic of malignancy. Uh, we also find that friability is very characteristic for malignancy. If you go through a stricture and it's friable, we'd be highly suspicious that that is a malignancy. Irregular strictures is a possibility, ulceration is a possibility, as so is nodularity. But in category of uh, importance in terms of making diagnosis, vascularity, vascularity, vascularity. Dr. Reichman, this has been an unbelievable podcast, and I think the audience is going to get a ton out of it, not only learning about your techniques for diagnosis of cholangiocarcinoma, but what's made you successful, too. If you were to leave us just with one key point or tip that might help physicians in diagnosis of cholangiocarcinoma, what would that be? Uh, two things. One is be highly suspicious of it. And uh, the other one is be true to the technology. So uh, what I mean by that is if you're going to be doing spyglass, you have to honor what spyglass does. It cannot be rushed, have to be complete, has to be uh, fully performed just the same way that we perform other procedures. We don't want to miss something. And it has to go through the physician's state of mind to do the tissue diagnosis, the visual diagnosis, the local staging, all of those in one session. We want to provide the patient, the family, the referring physician, the faster the answer, the better it is, the faster the, the uh, uh, therapy that is going to be instituted, and so on. So just be true to the technology, and that should be successful. Well put. Last question. Game six. World Series tonight in Houston. Will be the first win in the World Series by Justin Verlander. They'll take it tonight. You're predicting? I am certain. Good stuff. I hope they pull it out. And that's Endocast. Please follow Boston Scientific Endoscopy on our Twitter and LinkedIn feeds. You can also visit us at endosuite.com. That's endosuite.com which features over 70 physician-led educational videos, including lectures, case studies, device training videos, procedural tips, and techniques. Thanks for listening. Endocast listeners, an important disclaimer. These materials are intended to describe common clinical considerations and procedural steps for the use of reference technologies, but may not be appropriate for every patient or every case. Decisions surrounding patient care depend on the physician's professional judgment in consideration of all available information for the individual case. Boston Scientific does not promote nor encourage the use of its devices outside of their approved labeling. Case studies are not necessarily representative of clinical outcomes in all cases, as individual results may vary. The law restricts devices to sale by or on the order of a physician. Indications Contraindications, warnings, and instructions for use can be found on the product labeling supplied with each device. Products shown for information purposes only may not be approved for sale in certain countries. This material is not intended for use in France only and by prescription only.